0: This podcast is a production of the Ephesus School Network. In the the Lord, in
1: then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Revelation 10, 8 through 11.
0: You are listening to the Tell Me the Story podcast with your hosts, Blaze Webster and Rowdy Wind. Join us as we engage in a complete read-through of the Holy Scriptures, parsing out the original languages with one question
1: in mind. What is the story? Today we will hear chapter 16 of Genesis. We are coming off of last week's reading, chapter 15, when we heard of God's first covenant with Abram, where he promised to him to give his offspring the land of Canaan. Abram was promised peace and a great future for his children. And in this chapter, we will hear of Abram and Sarai's quick backstep as they fail to trust God. Let us hear the story. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, The Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai.
0: Okay, so if you've been listening to us for a while, you should instantly be seeing red flags. And (laughs) I guess not even red flags anymore. This is full on Star Trek style, red alert, get to battle stations kind of situation. I don't think I need to go super in depth as to why Sarai's behavior here is problematic, but. I will remind our listeners that this is essentially a repeat of the inaugural sin Adam commits in Genesis 2, and it's repeated yet again by by Eve in Genesis 3 when Cain is born to her. And this is the cardinal sin that the nation of Israel as a whole will commit throughout the scriptural epic. So what is that sin? Well, it's simply a refusal to submit to God's will, including his timing in an attempt to subvert his will with our own. This is the sin of being unhappy, or put another way, ungrateful for what God has given you. The human being always wants more, and it's a never-ending cycle. In fact, you can see this phenomenon in many other religions and philosophies, you know, particularly Buddhism. The, The thread that ties the incredibly diverse schools of Buddhism is the acknowledgement that our desires for what we don't have is what causes life suffering. Or in the Pali language, it's Dukkha. And that literally means, that word literally means, in the language, unsatisfactoriness. Now, that's quite evocative, and this, I would argue, is also at the heart of the biblical message. It's a perpetual thorn in humanity's side, and it drives the behavior of countless characters in this epic. In this story, instead of submitting to the fact that God has closed Sarai's womb, she tries to subvert this by having Abram produce offspring with one of her servants, thus forcing progeny for them obviously sarai is seriously lacking the amon in god's promise as she will do
1: until that promise becomes a reality i mean it's a joke yeah i mean she's not just forcing progeny according to the hebrew text she is building progeny i echo what you said about how this is in light of adam's sin and eve's sin it is especially repeating adam's sin When our English version says, go into my maidservant, and perhaps I shall obtain children by her, the Hebrew literally says, and please hear this, go into my maid, and perhaps I will build from her. It doesn't have any mention of children. It's literally saying, perhaps I can build something. It doesn't say what, but of course the connotation is children. I hate how hollow our English renderings are. It's totally missing the connection. This is clearly a reminder of Adam's desire for God to build him a helper. Uh, Remember, it used the same word, God built Eve. And Adam then subjugates her into the role of wife-mother, i.e. a unilateral function where a woman is nothing more than the producer of offspring. You can even hear that function in verse 3 where it says, "...therefore Sarai gave Hagar the Egyptian to Abram her husband as a wife." with the term wife being set up by the explanation that she will simply be property, controlled by a man, and she will be a child producer, just like the woman Eve in Genesis 2 and 3. This is the wrong attitude to have, and unfortunately for our characters, this attitude spells destruction, especially for the primary victims Hagar and Ishmael.
0: Yeah, and to make matters worse, Abram listens to the words of his wife instead of keeping the faith in God's promise to him. I mean, basically, Abram's Reaction is just, all right, yeah, whatever. This echoes the events in the expulsion from the garden in Genesis 3. Like Israel's constant back and forth from legitimate faith to ungodliness, Abram has a similar trajectory. He is definitely running this race, but along the way he's tripping over nearly every hurdle that is being presented in front of him.
1: Absolutely, and I think with the name Hagar, there's a lot to unpack. According to various lexicons and concordances... Scholars are a bit unclear of the derivation of the name. I will posit, however, that the name is derived from the Hebrew ger, which is a sojourner or a stranger. This makes sense because the text tells us that she is an Egyptian. Why do Abram and Sarai have an Egyptian in their household as a slave in the first place? Well, just two chapters ago, remember, Abram made off with great riches and many slaves gifted from Pharaoh. It's no leap in logic to assume that Hagar is but one of these Egyptian slaves. She is functionally a sojourner, a stranger in the land given to Abram. She is a stranger in his household. Now, if we are hearers of Scripture, we should automatically feel very uncomfortable with the rest of this story because we know from the total message of Scripture that the stranger, the sojourner, is precisely the person that we are supposed to watch over and protect. And just really quickly, for those unfamiliar,
0: in Hebrew, the word ger, if you just put the definite article in front of it, you get ha-ger, right? And uh, the vowels, we have to remember, are really loose, because the original Hebrew didn't have these vowel pointings, so it, it could be ha-gar. It, literally, in, in Hebrew, that means the sojourner. So, I mean, it, it's it's pretty obvious if you just hear it that way.
1: Yeah, and I mean... Not that this is like the penultimate argument of this podcast episode, but even in scriptural Hebrew grammar, when a word, when a noun is in pause, and it has an e vowel under it, when it is uh, in a place of pause in the sentence, the e vowel will lengthen sometimes to an a vowel. So, if you had Hagar in the pausal state, it would be Hagar, which is exactly how her name is pronounced. We say Hagar because we're American, but it is Hagar.
0: Yeah, and uh I think I think this just goes to show that you can't rely too much on the vowel pointings like, like Bible Hub does because you you said that, that you know you you like to uh put the unpointed Hebrew into Bible Hub sometimes and, and, and sometimes you can get a lot deeper into these words whereas you know, a lot of this stuff gets kind of lost in Bible Hub because it's it's differentiating things on the basis of the Masoretic pointing.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. Bible Hub is an extraordinary resource for anybody who wants to look into this kind of stuff. And and like Blaze said, I told him um, off the record, outside of the podcast, that sometimes when I am looking into a name, uh, you know, Bible Hub isn't so kind to tell me what the name means, even though almost always the names in the scriptural story mean something in Hebrew. So you can take the word, and you know, if you know how to work a Hebrew keyboard on your computer, you can type in the unpointed version of the word and most often times you'll find something yeah it's very helpful uh the word hagar or her name also somewhat resembles the hebrew word harag you can kind of hear it hagar harag hagar harag it's the same word but the second two consonants are flipped harag means to slay or to kill how much more damning can you get i know we are quite there yet but in a couple of verses we will hear of how harshly sarai deals with hagar So she flees into the wilderness. And if that was the end of the story, we could only assume that it meant Hagar's death. The logical conclusion, then, is that Sarai's actions meant the functional harag, or slaying, of Hagar. We already had a connection to the earlier narrative of Genesis, with Sarai building progeny from Hagar. And this anagram of Hagar, harag, offers another connection to that earlier narrative. Because, you know, despite the fact that there are a variety of words in Hebrew that mean to kill or slaughter or slay. It is this word, harag, that is used when Cain kills
0: Abel. And there also may even be a connection, albeit perhaps distant, with the Hebrew word chag, which denotes a festival gathering. Uh, this is ultimately from the word chagag, which means to make a pilgrimage. Uh, in Arabic, the corresponding word is hajra, which has the connotation of migrating somewhere. And the famous word that that comes from this, of course, is Hajj, the great pilgrimage to Mecca, which is compulsory for all able-bodied Muslims. So we see how this is functional with, with Hagar, as she is a sojourner among Abram's household due to the fact that her homeland is Egypt, and she'll be cut off from Abram and end up a sojourner in the wilderness of Arabia with her son. Thus, she clearly parallels the situation of the Israelites when they themselves become enslaved. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power, do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with Hagar, and she fled from her.
1: Uh, And if I may, I think it would be really beneficial for us to consider how different audiences might hear this passage. You know, it's extremely important when we read any literature, but especially the Bible, to be aware of how our own experiences and values manipulate the message of the text in the way that we hear it. Uh, And if we consider how different people might interpret the text, we can potentially come closer to understanding the point behind it. For instance, those of you who are at all familiar with the Marvel Cinematic Universe might recall that many of the films in the MCU's canon, especially the earlier ones, are heavily focused on real-world militaristic conflict. Those who maybe have a disdain for war and the military, such as myself, might watch these movies and write them off as fantastical portrayals of war, nothing more than U.S. military propaganda. However, somebody who might be more on the fence, more neutral in regards to war and U.S. involvement overseas, might watch these movies and, and see something else, that they are, in fact, a critique of militarization. And global conflict. That person will then be faced with the decision. Does the movie make a good point? Or can they, the viewer, go on about their life unaffected by what the movie is proposing in its critique of war? Whereas the other person who simply wrote it off because they don't like war and they just assume it's propaganda, they don't get the message because their ears aren't open to it. I think in this passage we have a situation like this. These three verses kind of Beg different responses from different people without making a clear moral statement, such as this is good or this is bad. How should we, as the audience, interpret it? Well, it's kind of up to our preconceived notions how we respond to it, but remember, we have to work to hear what the text is saying. If an ancient Mesopotamian king were to hear this passage, he would probably think that Abram and Sarai responded appropriately, and that God's protection of the stranger Hagar, who fled her masters, would be tantalizing. Because according to the human intellect, only the powerful are under God's favor. He might even see God's instruction for Hagar to return to her abusers as evidence that God is in favor of the king. Now, if we flip the script, what if a 19th century African-American slave woman heard this story? It would be no surprise if she empathized with Hagar since this particular arrangement was very common in enslaved populations in early America. The slave owner would have his way with whoever he wished, and if there was an illegitimate child, so be it. The slaves just had to deal with it. If they escaped their owner who took advantage of them, they couldn't survive out in America. They would be killed, or worse, returned to their owner. I mean, if you think of it within that context, Sarai is even more wicked than the wicked slave owners of 19th century America. If they caught the same disdain from one of their slaves, they would likely just brush it off and go about their day. But Sarai, she deals harshly with Hagar, just for looking at her wrong. I mean, forget about what Hagar just went through. God forbid Sarai catch a bad vibe. And the Hebrew is very evocative. The word for dealt harshly with comes from the root, which literally means to defile. Sarai is out to ruin this poor woman. So she runs away, as one would expect. Part of what makes this story so impressive, though, is that even if we empathize with Hagar, like this hypothetical slave from 19th century America might, the scriptural story still follows Hagar's abusers. We get a brief word of consolation for Hagar, but the remainder of the story doesn't follow her. Rather, we continue to focus on Abram and this wicked woman Sarai. It's tantalizing. I, as the hearer of the text, don't want these two to receive God's favor. They are wicked, and they hurt those around them, and I want them to suffer. But lo and behold, that makes me wicked. That turns me into the self-righteous one. Scripture doesn't care what I want. It is a story meant to reveal our sin, not our brothers, and provide an example, a mashal, so that we may understand that God is one who desires the salvation of everyone, and we have no place to provide our input because the the whole point is that
0: everybody including the characters the readers and the writers of these texts are all equally bad you know that's that's the that's the point and the the only quote unquote good guy of scripture i mean isn't necessarily even good by our standards is the scriptural god god just is what he is and he's a judge you know and so that's that's the, the, whole, the whole picture. So if, if you understand that, then it really disambiguates a lot of these more difficult texts, I think. Um, but with that said, the way that the scripture deals with the treatment of the slave and the outsider is really brilliant, though. Sarai's mistreatment of her servant Hagar as sojourner is looking ahead to the frequent command in the rest of the Torah that the Israelites are to have mercy on the sojourner because they were once sojourners in the land that wasn't theirs. And the same is true for Abram and Sarai. They were once sojourners in Egypt, as we read in chapter 13, and now they are sojourners in the land of Canaan. Remember that God hasn't yet given them the land as an inheritance. What Sarai is doing is doubly nefarious because she is dealing harshly against Hagar for a problem she caused herself. This is classic humanity, and this is the paradigm that the Bible is constantly trying to strip down. Human leaders will always take advantage of those under them. It's a survival mechanism in nature, existing in all species. But the Bible is unique in that it is teaching us that our primal instincts for survival actually cause death and destruction for us, and that to truly survive is to undermine our instincts and cling to the instruction of the scriptural God. At the forefront of this is our innate dependence on self-preservation. Again, this is written in the DNA of all life forms, but God uproots our self-preservation by reminding us that it is ultimately futile because guess what? We all die and return to dust anyways. All humans are is Hebel, like Abel, right? We are all passing away like a vanishing breath. To be preoccupied with our self-preservation is to be enslaved to death. But God is freeing us to life. That's why St. Paul astutely points out the metaphor of... Sarai and Hagar's children, by saying in his letter to the Galatians, in chapter 4, verse 24, these women are two covenants. One of them is Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Hagar is bearing her son for slavery because his sole existence was orchestrated by Sarai's desire for self-preservation. This was the same mechanism driving the Jerusalemite elite and the Judaizing Christians of Paul's time. The leaders of the church, who Paul sarcastically called pillars, were enforcing the Mosaic law onto Gentiles for the sole purpose of preserving the traditions of their forefathers, preserving Judaism. Since Judaism was their identity, the loss of Judaism would mean a loss of themselves. The Bible is very intelligent. Think of all the modern preservation movements. I mean, we just had a president whose motto was make America great again, And that was for his first presidential run. And then for the second one, it was keep America great. Now, again, don't think I'm being political here. It's merely an observation. I can just as well pick on anyone who is a conservationist of any kind. In fact, the the comedian George Carlin has a great skit where he makes fun of environmentalists. His basic point is to say that the earth has been through way more destructive events than anything humanity could, could cause by carbon emissions or something. The earth will be okay no matter what humans do. It is humanity that will be destroyed by this human behavior, not the planet. So saving the earth is really about saving ourselves. And now, of course, you know, I'm not saying that we should just pollute the atmosphere and not take climate change seriously, but let's be honest with ourselves about it. We're not fighting climate change to save the earth. We're fighting climate change to prolong human existence. But once again, the Bible reminds us, what's the point? Especially if that fight for self-preservation involves us raising a hand against our brethren. As Job 8, 9 reads, For we were born only yesterday and know nothing, and our days on earth are but a shadow.
1: In verse 7 it says, The angel of the Lord found her, Hagar, by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, Where have you come from, and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring, so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a god of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Beer Lahai Roy, it lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram.
0: Now this next section is really interesting. Uh, For one, this is the first mention of the word malak, meaning messenger. Now of course this gets translated into English as angel, and really angel is simply a transliteration of the Greek word angelos, which also means messenger. Not only that, we also have the first of the recurring phrase Malach Yahweh, the messenger or angel of the Lord. When we hear the word angel, naturally we think of a spiritual creature like archangels or the cherubim or something, but that's not inherently correct. Again, Angelos and Malach simply mean messenger, and not all messengers are spiritual beings, and not all spiritual beings are angels. So, for example, the cherubim who were appointed to guard the tree of life in Genesis 3 are not angels per se, but guardians. That is their function. Likewise, not all angels are spiritual beings and are at times living human beings. And that word melak is obviously related to the word for king, melek, so the connotation is clear. The Malach Yahweh bears the message or the words of instruction of
1: Yahweh himself, the king. He is a member, so to speak, of God's HR department. Yeah, and if I could briefly interject, we must also remember that scripture's tendency to critique the surrounding culture is prevalent, especially in this passage. Often, the kings of nations were the direct vassals of God, or they were the gods themselves, thus making them the prime mediator between a god and the people the prime messenger scripture invents this word malak it's one of these fantastic words that according to various scholars has no derived root so it's made up to distinguish between kings and the true messengers of yahweh the one true god uh, because anyone can be a messenger of god if god decides that they are a messenger and human kings are almost always living contrary to godliness, and thus not messaging God's decrees.
0: Right, so why have this intermediary figure between Yahweh and the people anyways? Well, I think to answer that question, we have to look at the pattern we've been handed so far. We've heard of God speaking directly to people, and we've heard of him speaking to people through his word, his debar. and now we have him speaking through an intermediary. This prefigures the language used when the angel of the Lord is leading the Israelite community into the Midbar after the exodus from Egypt. So what's going on here? Well, God is more and more becoming distant from his creation, and this is for our mercy. Think about it this way. In a workplace situation, the managers are mouthpieces for the boss of the company, right? The boss is typically absent from the actual workplace, and if he has a message for the employees, he sends his managers as messengers of the message. When the boss actually has to come to the workplace and speak to his employees directly, that's usually bad news. In other words, as an employee, we want the intermediary because if we meet the actual boss, it might be our termination. As the scriptures say, no one can see God and live. The worse our situation as sinful human beings gets, the more necessary an intermediary becomes. Eventually, God will end up not even speaking through intermediaries, but through the written text itself. That is the function of the scriptural text according to scripture itself. So that's the point of all this. Remember, scripture is a totality and not just bite-sized snippets of Theological mumbo-jumbo.
1: Right, and that's a part of what makes the character of Jesus in the New Testament so immutable. He is the incarnation of the Devar Yahweh, according to John. So he is an intermediary, but according to Scripture, he is inextricably linked to Scripture itself. So he is an intermediary, but in the same way that Scripture is an intermediary. We shouldn't waste time making these reductionist theological statements about divine natures and Trinitarian inner workings and all this nonsense. It's it's very simple.
0: Next, we have a pretty common feature in the scriptural narrative, which is the Annunciation type scene. These type scenes were famously laid out in detail by scholar Robert Alter in his groundbreaking book, The Art of the Biblical Narrative. So, if you want the most solid exposition on this topic, that's certainly the place to look. But this type of interaction is something that will pop up from time to time. Namely, the announcement of the birth to either a barren woman or a woman of a low social status is what you will see most often. Hagar, of course, is the latter part, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, for example, ticks both of those boxes. But that's but one example, of course. There's also Hannah, the mother of Samuel. There's Samson's unnamed mother. And even Sarah, a few chapters down the line, although her response is obviously a little different, but we'll get to that later. This is a powerful scene for many reasons. For one, Hagar is driven into the Midbar due to the abuse of her mistress. But God has pity on her, And not only does he have pity on her, but he sees her and he hears her when no one else does. This is our first glimpse into the scriptural deity's preoccupation with the weak members of society, something that is totally against the grain. And I can't stress enough the importance of the parallel between Hagar and the enslaved Israelites in the book of Exodus. Hagar the Egyptian is mistreated by the ancestors of the very same Israelites who will experience slavery under Hagar's kinsmen. This is astounding. Not only is a Hebrew woman abusing an Egyptian, a Hebrew woman is abusing an Egyptian long before the Egyptians were abusing the Hebrews. So the Hebrews did it first, according to scripture. But God hears them both, which is ultimately the meaning of Ishmael's name. God has heard. And if you know the book of Exodus, you'll know that God repeats that phrase often. I have heard your cries in bondage. He says that all the time. So Ishmael is a reminder that God hears the cries of the weak. And for the Israelites hearing this, it's a reminder that God hears the cries of their enemies too, including the Egyptians, if they so choose to take up arms against them. Honestly, this is absolutely astounding. And it not only demonstrates God's impartiality, but his unique concern for those who are suffering under the boot of oppression. And I, and I think that we we can't just gloss over that. We have to really understand it for what it is, especially in the context of the ancient world. Because you read a lot of mythology, especially the, the Greek mythologies, and the gods would pick certain sides, certain people groups to to uh be loyal to you know you read this a lot in the uh in, in in homer's iliad certain gods were loyal to the trojans and certain gods were uh were loyal to the achaeans but the scriptural god isn't really loyal to anybody <laughs> you know he's he's there for the the poor and the weak and anybody who is going to listen to his words. I mean, it's it's totally against the grain. It's totally unique. You know, I can't think of another instance in the ancient world, or even really since then, where you have a god like that. It's it's crazy. And this, of course, leads us into a part that may seem uncomfortable for modern ears, but but that is the commandment of hagar to go back to her mistress modern hearers might be shocked or put off by this shouldn't god be encouraging hagar's liberation well yes and he does eventually but this particular moment is a reminder to all listeners especially those under the boot of oppression like the original recipients that if god is truly your master you have nothing to fear including the wrath of your enemies because if you are a slave of god God is your shield, as the Psalms say over and over again. And if you intently listen to the Meshalim of Scripture, you'll notice very quickly that God has complete control over everyone in the story. Speaking of Exodus again, people get very up in arms when they read that book for the first time and come to the places where God deliberately hardens Pharaoh's heart so that he won't let the Israelites out of bondage. Well, we have to put our arrogance aside in judging God's actions and try to see what practical purpose a detail like this has in a story where the God it is speaking of is the functionator of everything. Oh, oh wait, there it is. It's there to show the Israelites before they are to conquer the promised land that God has complete control over their enemies. That's all it means. So when you get to 1 Samuel chapter 8, when the Israelites are demanding a king for security, it should sound very tragic and very silly. This is the God that literally demonstrated to you that he was playing Pharaoh's moves like a pawn in a chess game. And you have the gall to be worried about your other enemies? Are you kidding me? Therefore, Hagar should have nothing to fear because God hears her. And that imagery of the well only carries this home. In the barren wilderness of her situation, the living waters of God's message come to her pronouncing the basar Tob, the good news. The good news that the god of her masters hears her cries. That's powerful. Powerful literature. And it makes Sarai's mission to bring this child up into slavery
1: all the more tragic. And that concludes our episode. Please, dear siblings, remember, as Hagar shall, El ro'i wa'ishma'el ka. The Lord is a God who sees and hears you, even in the darkest of your days in the wilderness. This is truly a comfort to find rest in, but as Blaze said, this doesn't mean you get anything you want, because he is also a God who sees and hears your enemies. You must be merciful to all as your Father in heaven is merciful lest you become the enemy of your enemy thus the enemy of God This is the scriptural decree you can't shake it So I pray thee uphold it Lord have mercy See you next week
0: and he shall be like the tree which is planted by the streams of the-